Russia, as everyone knows, is fundamentally unknowable. And Russian politics is bleak, relentlessly depressing. Ruled by tyrannical despots through its entire history, the Russian soul is consequently dark, fatalistic, born to suffer pointlessly and die young. This is, of course, a silly caricature, but it's really not that far from the general idea people in the West often seem to have of the country. And with the recent murders of Alexei Navalny and Evgenia Pogosian, both seemingly by the Russian state, it seems the more that changes, the more things remain the same. Vladimir Putin has once more emerged as an unassailable figure in Russia. Talk of his ill health seems to have been overblown. Talk of his imminent defeat in the war in Ukraine, likewise. And talk of his mercurial global influence over the election-heavy year of 2024 is just ramping up again. It's all shrouded in mystery, conveyed only by rumour. But one thing is for certain. There's been talk of Putin. In fact, we hear little else about Russia than the dominance of this single man. Today's guest on Navarra FM is Tony Wood, whose 2018 book, Russia Without Putin, argued that our focus on Putin distorts our conception of Russia and prevents us from seeing the structure in which he works. Just over five years ago, he spoke to James Butler on this very programme about that structure. You can find that episode linked in the show notes. But since then, a huge amount has changed. A catastrophic pandemic that saw, by some counts, upwards of a million excess deaths in the country, followed by the invasion of Ukraine, the rise and calamitous fall of Evgenia Prigozhin, and the murder of Alexei Navalny. My name is Richard Hanks, and I spoke to Tony Wood about the Russian opposition in disarray, how our Cold War ideas of the Soviet Union still inform our view of Russia today, and the prospect of a Third World War. Thank you so much for doing this. Welcome to Navarra FM. Thank you for having me on. So when Putin recently appeared on Tucker Carlson's interview show, he presented an extremely long, very, very in-depth history of Russia's relationships with, or relation with Ukraine. This is far outside of the scope of the way in which this relationship or this history is normally narrated in the West. I think at one point it stretched back to the 8th century. How do we understand this presentation of the history of this relationship? Is it mere um, smokescreen? Is it, was it deliberately tedious? Was it deliberately long-winded? Was it deliberately obscure? Or what should we understand as the important parts of this for Putin? Um, so I should preface my answer by saying that I didn't actually watch the Tucker Carlson interview. Uh, life is too short to listen to an hour-long Putin history lecture. Um, so uh, I can't really comment in depth on, on the content per se of Putin's uh, you know, disquisition. But um, a couple of things, I think one is that um, yeah, it does fall outside the normal understanding of what were the drivers and causes of this war, which even in the West tend to be framed uh, in terms of post-Soviet Russia and certainly in terms of Putin's time in power and in particular since um, the fall of uh, Yanukovych in Ukraine and the Euromaidan protests really turned Ukraine much more decisively in a pro-Western direction. And that is the thing supposedly that animated Putin's ire and caused him to annex Crimea in 2014. So that, if you like, 
10, 20, maybe 30-year framework is what people are used to thinking of, as, as you said. Um, and so Putin going back another you know, 1,000 years or so is a bit of a, well, A, shock, B, boring, um, C, um, whatever the word is, history nerd in this very surprising way for a head of state. Um, some things to say about that. One is that this, this is not new argumentation from Putin. Before the war was launched, he also wrote an essay on the historical unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people that was a kind of programmatic statement of uh, here is why uh, Ukraine belongs in Russia's orbit because we really are the same people and this is absurd that they have their own uh, they have a pro-Western orientation, doesn't make sense. They are civilizationally part of what Putin thinks of as uh, the Russian world. Yeah, Russian world is a term he uses, actually. Um, and within that kind of nationally imaginary, all of these dates that Putin, I know some of the ones he cited, but I'm sure many of the other markers he quotes along this thousand-year trajectory, um, he's not digging these up in some from some sort of obscure source. These are kind of common knowledge in the Russian national imaginary. Um, a bit like, I don't know, if you ask, if you ask an English person about the Battle of Agincourt, uh, people above a certain age probably will know that. I don't know what they're teaching in schools. Um, but certainly, if you think of British imperial history as well, a lot of the marks of that will be very obvious and known to people if they're interested at all in, in this kind of stuff. Um, and I think, I mean, just to throw this in there, I think a lot of what Putin is saying about the unity of Russian and Ukrainian people, obviously, Ukrainians feel extremely differently about that, and they have every right to. Um, but I think to just for, for British listeners, certainly, if you think about the arguments that were made against Scottish independence by English people at the time of the referendum, these are actually quite parallel, right? The, the, the sense that, oh, no, but the Scottish, they're not a separate people. We have all of this common history. Uh, Scots were very much part of the expansion of the British Empire and British greatness. Think of all the great Scots who invented things that we count as British, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so I do think, um, and this is not to kind of exculpate Putin at all from any of this, but it's just to say that this is kind of this historical nerdery that he goes into is basically just neo-imperial reasoning. Um, and in the UK, we are not strangers to that. Um, so it's, it, it might have been a shock in terms of liberal commentary or, or the, the mainstream commentary in the West, if you like. But within Russia, this is stuff that they've been rehashing for certainly since the beginning of the war. But even before that, since 2014, you know, Ukraine is really an important piece of what Russia thinks of itself as. If you like, um, for Russia to be... Uh, a power in the world that involves centrally having some grip over Ukraine. And that is the thing that they can't process, that this this uh, this thing that they think of as part of themselves is actually an independent state with uh, priorities and interests of its own. That That's the fundamental fact that Russian, certainly Russian nationalists can't process, Putin certainly can't process, but he's very much not alone in that. So I would say a lot of the stuff he came out with in the interview is probably very commonly held opinion in Russia. But despite that commonality, it was a great shock to Tucker Carlson, right? Already it was a, it seems that he's been visibly surprised by the idea that the argumentation of like a, a war would go back and have such a, as a broad scope. There is, however, a sort of a trap that I've fallen into immediately with my first question, which is to focus uh, almost exclusively on the, the figure of Putin and the, the way in which Putin in some ways allows us to um, project uh, a set of unified and completely transparent motivations onto this thing, Russia, and it allied many of the contradictions and tensions and different kinds of structures that sit sort of underneath that. That's not a recent thing. Uh, much of commentary on Russia for 
many, many years has focused on its sort of unknowability, its darkness, its confusingness, its like mercurialness and so on. Can you give us a picture of when that image of Russia as something very apart from Europe, something very separate from Europe, something very difficult to understand emerges? Oh, that's a very big question. I mean, in some ways, this is the kind of whole central question for everyone who, who works on comments on studies Russia in general is, is where does it belong, right? Is it part of Europe? Is it not part of Europe? And the answer is always mixed, right? That, that it's geographically goes way beyond Europe, linguistically, culturally is part of Europe, but as a kind of vast territorial empire, it includes many uh, uh, people's cultures, traditions that are not uh, traditionally thought of as European. So it's, so it is a very, it's a large, plural, complex entity um, that has many European features, right? And so that thing is 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 what people are trying to square. Um, and that unknowability comes into that. There is a kind of exoticizing, you know, is Russia part of, you know, the mystical Orient? But I think there's also, you know, the Cold War, uh, and so well, actually going back to the Russian Revolution, you know, the, the arrival of the Bolshevik regime really... Puts a hole in the map as far as Western powers are concerned. Like this is a you know a dark zone where capitalism has been taken out. And what what is this in its place? It is a regime we have to try and get rid of. They did. They intervened in the Russian Civil War to try and get rid of the Bolsheviks. Did not work. Um, so arguably, the Cold War really starts in 1917, if you like, um, and that kind of opposition between. Uh, capitalism, communism, democracy, unfreedom, whatever you want to call it, that set of polarities, which is what Western analysis is based on, really takes root early in the 20th century. Um, that said, one of the interesting things about the Cold War period, and especially you know the high Cold War, if you like, 50s, 60s, 70s, through into the 80s even, is that because of the Cold War, there is a lot of interest in Russia and the Soviet Union and a lot of priority given to understanding the enemy, right? Especially in the US, less so the UK and Europe, but even so, there are institutes dedicated to the study of Russia and Soviet Union. Um, there's a lot of translations of scientific academic work. And there is also kind of in parallel to that, a lot of actual exchange of academic opinion conferences, all of these gatherings. So there's one of the things I try and get out in the book that is sort of, um, I think the biggest, if you like, perversity, if you like, of the post-Cold War period is that Russia, since the end of the Cold War, has, if anything, become more opaque to the West. Since it's been possible to travel there freely, since, uh, you know, it, through the 90s, at least, it certainly had a democratic government that was not stopping foreigners from coming in, mostly. Um and so, so Russia, in a weird way, through the turbulence of the 90s and into the 2000s, became more unknowable than it had been as an enemy. And I think that is, that is a very peculiar feature of Western analysis of Russia. Um, and, you know, once Putin arrives in power early on, he's obviously he's greeted with great enthusiasm by the Western press. Um, I, I'd love to quote the Thomas Friedman uh, editorial had the title Keep Rooting for Putin. Uh, published in, I think, 2000. Um, and so initially there was this enthusiasm, but it wasn't backed up with any real deeper attempt to understand what Russia was, what was specific to it, how it was experiencing these post-Soviet changes. That was really left to the kind of uh, remainder of this scholarly policy apparatus. There was still the very kind of smart people continued to work in that, but it wasn't receiving the same priority. 
And, you know, just to give you another example of this, um, the, uh, the UK Foreign Office used to have a language school where they would train people in Russian and they would go and send them off to be diplomats. And then they shut the language school and subcontracted out to some private provider. So uh, th- there's also a part of the story here is Western hubris, right? There's this like, everyone is converging towards capitalist modernity. We kind of don't really need to understand these people uh, and how they see the world as distinct from our view because they're just converging towards us. I mean, I, I exaggerate somewhat for polemical effect, but I think something like that is happening. Um, and the net result was a kind of shrinking of knowledge about these places. And, and on the basis of that, analysis became very much even more impoverished than during the Cold War. And yet Russia also had its own stories about how it was, how what had happened during the Cold War, had its own stories about the reason for the Soviet Union's collapse. And I'm wondering how those self-conceptions and those sense of Russia's own uh, extremely turbulent history informed then the kinds of structures that were put in place after the Cold War? Were they trying to prevent a sort of a repeat of that collapse? Were they trying to prevent a repeat of that sort of um, you know, diminution on the world stage? And I'm thinking particularly of the uptake of some really quite uh, balmy ideas like Volenko's new chronology, uh, which is a strikingly conspiratorial view of how exactly the whole of ancient history has been um, in some ways invented, fabricated, so that Russia might not have its true place, which uh, Flamenco says is this uh, um, essentially seat of all civilizations. Um, and I'm also thinking of the Liberal Democratic Party, probably the most spectacularly misnamed party in, in, all, of, in all of history. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in like how these uh, emerge as symptoms, this, this sort of trauma of Russia's self-conception emerges as symptoms um, through the, the, the post-Soviet period. Yeah, no, that's a really good way of framing it, that there is this sort of trauma really in the 90s uh, that it's the collapse, the disappearance of a country, the collapse of an economy, the disappearance of a whole kind of social system and way of understanding the world. Um, and really what happens in the 90s is this kind of free-for-all of ideas, if you like. I mean, free-for-all in many other senses we could come back to, but in the area that we're talking about here, um, it's really not clear what kind of self-conceptions are are going to work, uh, are going to have legs, if you like, are going to help explain or understand Russia's place in the world. And so there is this sort of chaos. Um, and I think it's not helped by the fact that the, the the people then ruling Russia, Yeltsin and co, they, they didn't really have a particularly profound idea of what Russia's place in the world should be. They just thought, oh, well, we'll just converge with the West as a liberal democracy and we'll have our place in the global order as you know a good free market partner to the West, right? That was the extent of it. Um, and, you know, and that's an extremely hollow idea and it's not very good at providing meaning for people's lives in a day-to-day sense. So I think, um, and this is where all kinds of conspiratorial thinking starts to take root um, and all kinds of weird cults and, you know, I don't know, all kinds of, I don't know, vitamin pill vendors, like there was a huge interest in that in the 90s. Um, Herbalife became very big in Russia. Um, but also kind of esoteric knowledge became this thing of like, okay, if we can't have, uh, the kind of official kind of very cobweb covered materialism of the Soviet system, then we have to go back further or we have to go back even further. And for people for whom like monarchism is not really appealing, then you can see them going back to, oh, well, we have to understand Russia as this millennial power. And what is it that defines that? And the answer is, um, vast territorial extent, some sort of multicultural 
space within which Russians are dominant and religion is another thing people return to. So there, there's all these ideas that Russians are getting hold of in different ways and in different pieces, and it's very fragmented. And so this is part of why you have um, people in all kinds of high places popping up with extremely wacky ideas. Um, and, and I think it, to some extent, you do see that fragmentation still. And that's, you know, it's been around for a long time, but I think in particular, what Putinism provides, if you like, is a kind of core of, a, of, a, of stability around which these ideas can sort of, I don't know, the metaphor might be like kind of they're magnetized by it. So like there is an idea of reasserting Russia's national greatness that a lot of these different people can agree on. A lot of liberals actually agreed on that. Uh, certainly a, a lot of people on the left for yes, you know, why should Russia be subordinated to the West permanently? We should have our own way of being in the world, right? Yeah, so so it is really about like the absence of a coherent worldview for like 10, 20 years. Um, and, you know, I think one of uh, Putin's strengths early on was that he gave people the impression that he would provide some sense to Russia's place in the world. And then we've seen what that actually means in the long run. But in the short run, that is that does explain a lot of his popularity is providing some kind of clarity in this otherwise extremely confusing period. And again, many of your listeners might have heard this before, but you know, a lot of the time, excuse me, in the '90s, people would refer to it as the time of troubles, which is a reference to this period in, you know, after the death of Ivan the Terrible in the late kind of 16th century, when Russia is invaded by multiple powers and there's a total state collapse. Um, so they think of it. The '90s were very much a period of state collapse for them, but on this massive historical scale, like we haven't seen it. I mean, no one's alive, obviously. We haven't seen this since like 1612 or whatever. Um, and that gets back to the Tucker Carlson point you mentioned earlier, that, that in a way, because of this kind of epochal collapse that Russia experienced in the 90s, people do reach back further into history to try and understand it. Hmm. I wonder if there was a sort of a sense in which it wasn't necessary to have a coherent story for a while, because, of course, there were other things going on, um, not only a mass privatization of things, but also a resource boom that um, managed to float uh, Putin's presidency for its 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 first few terms, uh, as the price of oil went up enormously over the first one, uh, and then of course allowed him to um, you know, spend a lot of money and uh, do a lot, have, be able to have a lot of power in in Russian society. I would encourage listeners who are very interested in that that period of um, the troubles uh, to go back to. James Butler's interview with you uh, some five years ago and, and have listened to that. I, I won't recover that ground because I think he, he dealt with it relatively well, but the very well. But the um, yeah, I, I think that's kind of a useful thing to go back to um, for sure. I'm interested in also in the in the way in which the hawkish politics of of NATO um, have a longer tail. So I'm thinking about the ways in which, for example, Cold War liberalism turns into a sort of a, a post-Soviet liberalism as well, and the way in which that sort of national security policy in the US and also, of course, in the other NATO states um, reacts to these changes in Russia. Does it forget about Russia? Of course, NATO doesn't dissolve itself. The point of NATO, at least originally, was to contain Russia, very obviously. And then Russia, or sorry, the Soviet Union disappears, and yet NATO persists. So how do we understand the sort of the, the relationship between these two things and how these two, th the Cold War liberalism and then post-Cold War liberalism and hawkishness are informed by the changing structure of Russia. Yeah. Um, I mean, one way to think about this is that, you know, NATO, as you say, was formed to contain 
the Soviet Union as an adversary within the Cold War kind of confrontation. But another way of thinking about this is that, um, and certainly some US foreign policy thinkers did think this way, especially um, speaking of Brzezinski, that the Soviet Union was just one iteration of Russian imperialism. Right. As far as these people are concerned. So the Soviet Union may be gone, but Russia still has an imperial essence, if you like, that we're going to have to deal with sooner or later. So why, from from these people's point of view, NATO has not yet outlived its function because an imperial Russia is just going to come back in one form or another. Or we might as well have the insurance policy. Right. And so the idea and in the 90s, what you have is this kind of two track strategy. One is the Clinton administration in particular palling around with Boris Yeltsin supervising this free market transition and encouraging Russia to be a partner to the West, but on the other hand, engaging in NATO expansion uh, as an insurance policy against the return of uh, a Russian nationalistically oriented state. Obviously, the great irony of this is that um, they could expand NATO in the 90s precisely because Russia was not imperialistically inclined at that moment, right? You know, and a number of analysts in the U.S. have, have, have put this very clearly that actually they could do this because it wasn't going to cost anything, and it and it was not going to Russia wasn't going to be able to do anything about it either, right? Um, at cer- at a certain point, and this is really into the two thousands with the Putin administration, the NATO expansion accelerates into the Baltics, into not just the satellite states of Eastern Europe that had been part of the Soviet bloc, which you know during the Cold War were part of the Soviet uh, bloc, uh, the Warsaw Pact bloc, but not part of the Soviet Union. In the 2000s, you get NATO expanding into things that had previously been part of the Soviet Union. And this is a different kettle of fish as far as the Russians are concerned. Again, in terms of power, they're not in a position to do anything about it. But I do think that in the 2000s, NATO expansion and the rise of of a nationalistically oriented Russian state start to interact dynamically and reinforce each other. Um, Brief parenthesis, this is a debate that is happening a lot on the left and outside the left, like does NATO expansion account for the war in Ukraine or is it Russian imperialism? And I I personally don't think you can actually separate out those two variables. They actually, they are causally interconnected. Um, I don't think if you had no NATO expansion, I don't know that you would have had the war in Ukraine today, but equally, uh, you know, we can't pretend that Russia has no imperialist inclinations towards Ukraine at all. They're, they they were just dormant for a time. So the question is, what is it that stirs that nationalism into motion? And I do think NATO expansion plays a big role in validating the Russian nationalist worldview that, oh, we are being surrounded by a hostile bloc. The answer to that is to build our own bloc. And that's where the clash over Ukraine begins to happen. Very interesting. Yeah. I think that the one of the most striking moments, just to go back to this idea of an essentially imperialist Russia with the Soviet Union as just one of its moments was that George Keenan, uh, the architect of the containment policy, this is one of the most striking details in your book, opposes the NATO expansion into Eastern Europe. I, I'm assuming, I'm not, I, didn't, I don't think the, the argument's given in the book, but um, I'm assuming on the grounds that uh, communism is now over uh, and therefore containment is no longer needed. Containment, just for listeners, was the the policy of trying to prevent the uh, what's called the domino effect, just the idea that once one country went communist, then another country would go communist, and so on and so on and so on and so on and so on. And the Soviet Union would develop a sort of collection of sort of client states throughout throughout the world. Um, he opposes it, but why does he oppose it? Like, what's his what's his rationale? That's a good question. I have to go back and look at what he actually said. But my my understanding, and again, I could be wrong about this, it was not that 
containment wasn't necessary, but that actually containment was, um, uh, it had a, a sort of more passive component and that expansion of NATO was actually just antagonizing Russia. And that was not part of containment, right? Um, so someone like Kennan would, would think there is this imperial core of Russia and that's going to be there, but we just, we've got it covered. Uh, we don't need to actually go into their backyard and antagonize them. Whereas, for example, the guy I mentioned, Brzezinski, he was much more aggressive. He actually said, I think at some point in the 90s, he said, okay, the goal should be to split Russia into three parts, like a state west of the Urals, one in Siberia and one in the Far East, and then that'll help us deal with the Russia problem because then it won't be this massive state on NATO's doorstep. But just in case, let's keep going with NATO, right? So, I mean, one way to think about this also is that you know, U.S. foreign policy thinkers, they have um, different tracks, right? They have a, a, a much more aggressive, hawkish track, which is expand NATO while Russia is down, and then we can deal with them later. We're in a better position. Or there's a softly, softly approach, which is the Kennan containment approach, which is that we don't need to keep expanding NATO. Uh, we've got it here. But you'll note that neither of these propose getting rid of NATO or a whole new security architecture in which Russia is a participant. Neither of them contemplate that. And I think that's that's an important thing to think about is that the, the US foreign policy establishment has these different tracks, but essentially they, they still perceive Russia as a fundamentally hostile entity. And there is no place for it in the US world order except as a client state. And that is, you know, and again, this is not to throw the responsibility on the West for invading Ukraine. I'm not saying that, but there is something there where part of the rise of Russian nationalism is this attempt to carve out a space for itself in the world that is not part of the West. And, and I guess the question for the US foreign policy establishment would be, okay, Russia is not part of the West. What is it, act, what is it doing in your world? Is it, a, is it an enemy? Is it not an enemy? If it's an enemy, then how do you expect it to act, right? Um, and again, we're having all of these similar debates about China, right? So, so these are these are the problems of of being the lone superpowers that people are going to not like it. I think people will find that kind of distinction within the U.S. foreign policy establishment uh, comprehensible because it's a sort of a debate. There are clearly multiple sides. There are clearly um, it's not just the blob, as I think it's it's kind of uh, not so affectionately known as in in Washington, but it is uh, a, multi- a differentiated um, system. You talk through in your recent article, Matrix of War, about the different kinds of aspects that exist within Russia, a geopolitical motivation, an economic logic, uh, and so on, and the ways in which those at various points in the post-Soviet era have come together, have been split apart, have um, had different views on what should happen. And I was wondering if you could, in trying to explain Russia's invasion of Ukraine, talk us through the perhaps coordination or discoordination of those different logics in, in, in Russian politics. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess, again, I should preface this by saying that, that the invasion, you know, two years ago was a real shock to me. It seemed fundamentally, I mean, in addition to being criminal, uh, fundamentally irrational from the point of view of the Russian state. Um, and I still, I'm still grappling with why it would be rational for, even for this particular regime, for which I have no love, uh, to pursue this strategy. And I think there are pieces of the answer here and there, and I'm not totally satisfied with any of them, but but certainly that logic of confrontation with the West is a key part of it. That and and Putin is basically geared up for Russia to be in a semi-permanent state of war, but safely 
for the Russian people, at least uh, safely confined to Ukraine. Uh, Russia has, been, has worked out a way of making this war sustainable for it economically. And I think that is something useful for the regime that, that actually provides its nationalism with a kind of substance, right? So there's a, there's a regime legitimation aspect here, which is that, look, I've been talking about confrontation with the West all this time. Maybe you didn't believe me, but here it is. We're fighting against the combined forces of NATO and Ukraine. Obviously, this leaves the Ukrainians themselves out of the picture, which is one of the many uh, appalling aspects of this kind of Russian worldview, which is that, oh, well, we're really fighting the West. We're not really fighting the Ukrainians, but that is that is literally who they're fighting. Um, but I think so something like that, that where they feel like a confrontation with the West is coming or was coming all along, and so we might as well have it here and now, right? That's possible. I think there's also prior to that, certainly Ukraine, as we discussed earlier, Ukraine is really a kind of part of Russian nationalism's self-understanding of what it means to be a great power. Russia can't be a great power without Ukraine, more or less, is, you could sum it up. And so in order for that to be the case, they cannot have a pro-Western Ukrainian state on their doorstep. And so they're, they're, that's part of the motivation here. Russia tried various means during the 2000s to influence the Ukrainian uh, domestic political scene. Uh, they had a lot of influence uh, in eastern Ukraine. Uh, they had the what was called the Party of Regions, headed by Yanukovych, that was pro-Russian most of the time. So for most of the 2000s, the Russians clearly felt, look, Ukraine is sovereign and independent. We don't particularly like it, but at least we still have sway. And then what happens in the 2000s, and then it peaks with the Maidan revolution uh, in 2014, if you like, is that that Western uh, tilt of Ukraine accelerates and Russian influence declines and then disappears. And so you, another reading of events in Ukraine is that 2014 is the moment when Russia has nothing left in its toolkit for influencing Ukraine except force. Uh, and so the first thing they do is annex Crimea. And this at the time I read as a kind of red line to the West saying, look, you want this to be a pro-Western state, we will take it apart before we let that happen. Um, and obviously, from the Ukrainians' point of view, the annexation of Crimea very much validates the attempt to join NATO, because how else are you going to protect yourself, right? Um, Russian attempts to kind of uh, foment insurrection in eastern Ukraine, kind of sponsoring these local rebellions in the Donbass that then turn into a separatist uh, rebellion. Um, that, if you like, is also part of... Uh, you know, when you can't lobby politically, you have armed actors on the ground kind of messing things up. So again, this is part of like, Ukraine can only join the West at the price of dismemberment as far as Russia is concerned. So, um, and that conflict, you know, in the Donbass has been running for a long time. Um, it reached a kind of military stalemate, certainly still pretty lethal uh, and devastating for the people and landscape of Eastern Ukraine. But that still leaves the question of why in 2022, why was there a need to accelerate and massively step up the, uh, the level of aggression from Russia? Um, and, you know, for example, the, uh, many people remember in the early days of the invasion, the Russians actually invaded from the north southwards trying to seize Kiev. They were kind of going to topple Zelensky and put in a puppet. Um, and obviously that fell totally flat within hours. And... And, and that does raise various questions, one of which is, did they really think that would work? Um, was their intelligence really that bad? Or was that a kind of 
opportunistic play where they thought, well, look, if this works, it works. If it doesn't, we have this other plan for a war of attrition in the East, which is what we've ended up getting. So I do think there's a, there's a confusion of motives happening here that I haven't successfully unraveled myself. I don't know if anyone else has. What, one kind of dimension of that, sorry, confusion, that's often uh, talked about is the fact that uh, Putin himself spends a lot of time during the pandemic, very, very, very isolated. But of course, this is in some ways to fall back into the trap of focusing on, on Putin as a singular figure. But I did wonder if there's anything that happened in the last six years since the publication of Russia Without Putin that has changed your mind about the central thesis, which is that Russia is not really explicable as a feature of uh, Putinism, but uh, you must consider a sort of broader structure. Has anything changed to actually make Putin more central in those six years? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I guess I'd say yes and no, right? That, you know, when I wrote the book, and actually I, I, um, I did the paper back in 2020, just before he got uh, reelected again and altered the constitution so he can be reelected forever. And at that point, it was clear that he had uh, decided he couldn't entrust the system to anyone else and or couldn't entrust, couldn't trust that he wouldn't be thrown in jail by whoever came next. Some combination of those things. So he did make himself personally more central to the system. Um, and that's, that's certainly true. And I think um, um, at the time I thought, oh, he, someone else could come in and run this and it doesn't have to be Putin. And that was my position. I now think that he is, he is more central. He has made himself more central. Um, and one of the things the war in Ukraine has done is to increase the cost of defection for any of those elites as well. So everyone in that elite is much more closely tied personally to Putin's fate. Anything happens to him, they're all screwed. Um, so, um, so I do think that, yeah, Putin personally has made himself more central. At the same time, um, I do think the thesis itself still holds in the sense that you can't take an entire country to war on the whim of one man, right? There has to be some structural reason why everyone is doing this other than just, you know, they've been hypnotized or brainwashed or wherever, right? And they're not just slavishly following commands. There is some sense in which it is rational for them all to invest in this system with this one man at its center, right? So I think in a way that it heightens the enigma of why is it rational for these people to, to collectively buy into the dominance of this one man. But I think the answer is that he is he has made himself indispensable as the arbiter of these different factional interests. And they're all perfectly aware that were he to disappear uh, and they and this system wanted to continue living, then they would have to promote one faction at the expense of the others, and that would be unsustainable. Um, so I think something like that maybe is how I would uh, tweak the, the thesis. But I do think that the, the, the structural issue is still present, which is what is this structure and why is it why is it rational for that man to be there in the middle of it? Um, but I don't think, and, and for example, I don't think this is just Putin's war. I think this is the war of the entire elite. I think they all have bought into this idea. Hmm. One of those particular personal relationships that was particularly striking uh, during this war is, of course, the relationship between Putin and Bogosian, uh, the leader of Wagner PMC, PMC standing for private military contractor. Um, the idea here is that uh, there is a, a sort of a, strange army within an army or a private army that does things that the normal army can't do and so on. Could you just give us a brief account perhaps of the way in which that 
structure emerges, the way in which Wagner becomes so powerful. And also, how does it, because I see it, the way I see it is that it in some ways exemplifies your main sort of structural thesis in the book, which is the blurring of state and private capacity. I was wondering if you could speak to how the function of Wagner sort of worked there. Yeah, of course, no, it's exactly that. I mean, and one thing to think about with Wagner is that it's not just, um, we shouldn't think about Wagner in isolation, right? That is one piece of a larger kind of commercial empire that Prigozhin had that included all kinds of stuff, right? It included uh, the internet troll farms, I'm pretty sure were his. It included uh, PR firms that do a lot of kind of the other troll work. There's a whole suite of uh, profit streams, if you like, and, and the military aspect is one of them. Um, Wagner, as if I remember rightly, comes about in 2014. It's it's part of the arm's length kind of uh, plausible deniability that the Putin regime has for its armed actors in uh, eastern Ukraine, which is, oh, these are not regular units of the Russian army. This has nothing to do with us. These are private contractors. Um, and in that moment, Prigozhin makes himself useful um, as, as a kind of subcontractor for the Russian state but, but again, as a private actor. And over the intervening years, Wagner is deployed in various countries. Uh, certainly in Syria, they do a lot of fighting, but also in Africa, they're in Mali, uh, Central African Republic, uh, Libya, and Sudan more recently, I think. Um, and what they're up to there is a variety of things. Uh, yeah. There's a very strange example of them uh, being used in Venezuela to uh, personally be uh, Maduro, who had stopped trusting his own bodyguards. Right, exactly. So, uh, and in, you know, and in Mali, they they come in and they're backing the Malian government, um, and they and they kind of displace the French occupying force. So there's a kind of interesting imperial shift there. Um, and then when Wagner really kind of gains influences with the war in Ukraine, and then they um, Prigozhin recruits from prisons, as is well known, and he has these very large fighting units that do a lot of important. Uh, they wage a lot of important battles. They've had a lot more battle experience, if you like, in Syria and other places of the kind of fighting that is happening in Ukraine. Um, so they're extremely they're useful militarily. The scale of it, I'm not totally clear on, but it's um, various estimates, something like 25,000 fighters, the last count I heard, um, which is small as a proportion of the overall Russian, excuse me, overall Russian force in Ukraine. Uh, last estimate for that total I saw was on the order of 450, 470,000. So Wagner is small, but they, they're put into key places. Like So militarily, it's, if you like, we can also think of the war in Ukraine as a kind of public-private partnership, right, uh, where some of the state goals uh, are represented by this private company. Um, and it just so happens that one of Putin's pals is making a ton of money from the state budget with this. Um, yeah. And again, this is not atypical of how the Russian economy works, right? Uh, state revenues are directed into private pockets. It's just unusual for it to be done in the middle of a war that is being waged for such sort of nationalistic reasons. And Prigozhin's downfall, in a way, comes about because that isn't really sustainable, and the Russian army are clearly very pissed off with this guy getting any resources um, and getting kind of all the credit and having this disproportionate sway. And so eventually in the summer, uh, last summer, 2023, the Russian army says, look, there's an ultimatum here. You've got to integrate these Wagner units into the regular army or go home. And that's the thing that trips Prigozhin's rebellion, which I'm sure you know listeners watched with uh, bafflement at the time. One of the craziest things ever to happen. Um, is it is it explicable in the same kind of? I mean, you said earlier that the the invasion of Ukraine is in some ways a fundamentally irrational act, 
East Prigozhin's rebellion also like explicable in these kind of, I mean, sort of non-explicable in this kind of uh, terms? Or is there something more sort of rational and straightforward about it that you think then rather than the war in Ukraine? The way I would think of it is that it's a factional struggle, right? Within an army that is bogged down in a conflict, this happens all the time. What makes it especially uh, poisonous is that it's this private company run by a pal of Putin's and the regular army. So these are two very different kind of actors in play. And they're very public about, or at least Prigozhin is very public about his disagreements. And again, that's an, that's an unusual aspect. The other thing it reveals, I think, is you know, normally these factional conflicts would be done verbally behind closed doors, um, but also they wouldn't uh, make much difference to the news cycle, if you like. What's crazy about the Prigozhin thing is that he then advances on Moscow and gets pretty far, and I don't know that he was expecting to do that. And that tells you a few things. One is that these Wagner guys are extremely well-armed and marching on Moscow. No one wants to fight them, right? And that happens in, uh, in the summer. Um, but it also reveals a kind of fragility uh, within the military apparatus that, you know, they're not going to put down a rebellion in the way that any army would have done during World War II, for example. But it also points to a kind of factionalization of the chain of command, which is a, a very, uh, very disruptive to the war effort, I imagine. Uh, and, you know, we've seen Western powers engage in multiple interventions in recent decades. Nothing like this has happened in any of those places, right? These are smaller armies that the West has been deploying for the most part and a much tighter chain of command and a much more professional army. What you have on the ground in Ukraine is a much more of a kind of mishmash, much less well-run, much less well-supplied. And what's behind it is also not an integrated chain of command, but a series of factions being glued together by Putin. So one way of thinking about the Prigozhin is that it's kind of a stress test of the Russian system in the conditions of war. And on the one hand, yes, the system survived it, and Putin handily got rid of Prigozhin a bit later. But it didn't look good, I will say. Uh, and I think there were all kinds of people writing the Putin regime's obituary after Prigozhin rebellion. That was very exaggerated. But I think it does suggest that the war is revealing a lot of fragilities that they would rather not have had exposed. You mentioned earlier that Prigozhin is in some way, it's it probably part of, um, or a major part of this uh, online uh, misinformation, disinformation campaigns, as they are they're sort of phrased in, in the West. Uh, how seriously should we take this as, a, as an idea? Um, that Russia was meddling in elections, that Russia will continue to meddle uh, in elections this year. We're talking in 2024. So this is a, a, a year of like two to three billion people will vote in elections, huge number of people worldwide. How seriously should we take these ideas? Um, and there are sort of attendant concepts, fifth generation warfare, hybrid warfare, gray zones, unrestricted warfare, and, and so on. Like how, is there anything to this or is it sort of a, bo a boogeyman? Um... There's not nothing to it, right? There is something happening here. And I think, you know, the influence of social media on electoral cycles is, is significant. And we've seen this outside the Russian meddling context, certainly the importance of social media to the rise of someone like Bolsonaro in Brazil, for example. Um, so, so there is a real issue here. But I guess I would be skeptical that the Russian component of it had a decisive influence on any of these uh, elections. Um, and obviously, the paradigm case is the 2016 election in the United States. 
Uh, and liberals are very keen to blame Russia for Trump's victory. And I think at that point, it's not just the boogeyman. It's actually an alibi for examining, you know, for not examining any of the reasons for that defeat, of which there were many. They are large and structural questions of the kind of social disasters of the U.S. model, if you ask me. And Democrats have spent eight years totally running away from those because they can blame Putin. So on the level of uh, a political strategy, if you like, I don't think it's smart to focus on Russian meddling. But also factually, I just think uh, proportionally it's not as significant as people make it out to be. And, and I think maybe one way, again, to think about this is that the focus on Russian meddling provides a, a kind of clear uh, kind of place to lay blame when actually what we're confronting is a much more dispersed, difficult to analyze, kind of scrambling of all of the coordinates of democracy, right? That, that actually, uh, in the absence of kind of dense social networks of the kind that used to exist in social democratic countries in with declining rates of unionization, with kind of all the kind of social atomization of the pandemic, what it is that holds people together and makes them believe a certain way and vote a certain way rather than another is much less clear. This is why polling is also all over the place. Um, and I think no one has a good handle on what to do about that. Whether the Russians are tipping the scales in any of these contests, no one, to my knowledge, has provided clear evidence that they tilted any of the like no one can point to specific vote totals that went this way rather than another way because of a tweet that you know a russian troll farm sent it's just not there um and you know also uh, i would also add that given the budgets involved in your standard u.s election the idea that that election could be tilted by whatever it was the russians spent on twitter i think it was 100 grand like a lot of people should be fired if that's the case. <laughs> so I'm very skeptical that it explains anything, but it is a feature of the landscape. I think this thing about the motivatedness of a particular conception of Russia's power is really crucial. I want to just stitch it back to something we were talking about earlier, which is Cold War assessments of the Soviet Union's military capacity, were we found out after the Cold War had ended and these things came to light, vastly exaggerated. The idea that the Soviet Union was militarily sort of 20, 30 years ahead were not entirely uncommon from the assessments of the time. And in some ways, what we're looking at, I think, now is something quite similar to that, except that instead of these uh, being cashed out in nuclear weapons or indeed the various kinds of influence campaigns, like direct influence campaigns, beaming thoughts into people's heads and so on, that were imagined in the, the, the beginning of the Cold War in particular, now we have social media, now we have political advertising, now we have this kind of uh, you know, the uh, promotion of, of Trump and, and, and so on. I think they're, they're, they're pretty much uh, of a piece, at least in my view. I do want to go on to Navalny, who is in some ways the, the immediate motivation for having this conversation now. He's just died. Um, he just died in a, in a Russian jail. Um, but I want to get to him by thinking about the Russian opposition and the way in which that has different structural parts in the same way that we're trying to diffuse the absolute centrality and absolute sort of um, figure of Putin. I think it's important to do the same thing for the Russian opposition and look at it more sort of structurally. So I was wondering if you could give us a sense of where the Russian opposition comes from, what its different parts are, does it have um, what people sometimes think of as sort of controlled opposition parts. Um, this is the sort of, in some ways, um, Adam Curtis narrative of uh, Vasislav uh, Surkov and his mercurial influence over you know, the, the public, uh, public sphere in Russia. 
I mean, how seriously we should, should we take that? And like, how does the opposition constitute itself and what are its contradictions, tensions and so on? Yeah, I think um, we do need to think about different components, as you say. And then, and I guess the one major subdivision is uh, what in Russia they call systemic opposition and extra systemic opposition. So the systemic opposition is the parties that are allowed to be in parliament uh, that included the, um, as you mentioned, the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, uh, headed by the late Vladimir Zhirinovsky, which is virulently nationalist, not in the least liberal or democratic. Um, and that the, these are kind of permitted oppositions that just um, give the appearance of democracy to an otherwise rigged system. And that um, systemic opposition, so-called, includes not just uh, Zhirinovsky's party, as was, but also it includes the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, which is the kind of inheritor or one of the inheritors of the Soviet Communist Party's kind of brand, to use the, the wrong term. Um, and there's also a party called Just Russia, which was set up by uh, Surkov, who you mentioned in the mid-2000s, I believe, partly as a way of kind of siphoning votes from the Communist Party. And basically, this had a kind of mildly nostalgic, welfareist rhetoric. In substance, it didn't do anything at all. Uh, none of these parties did anything at all. They vote with the Kremlin on everything important. Uh, they just occasionally make noise when it looks like they have to. Um, however, there are moments when outside of this very tightly controlled pseudo-oppositional sphere, there are popular mobilizations um, that force these people to actually take up some of what they profess to believe in. And one of these examples, I'll give you one, is um, in 2018, just after the World Cup, um, or no, during the World Cup, excuse me, the Russian government announced it was going to raise the pension age. Um, and this prompted pretty significant protests by Russian standards, um, mobilized partly by the Communist Party, uh, partly by Just Russia Party, but also by trade unions, by various smaller movements, um, social organizations. And Navalny also joined that with his pretty significant outfit. Um, and that kind of pretty broad coalition of extra systemic uh, forces kind of obliged these people to start within the parliament to start saying something, right? So you could think of it as like the parliamentary opposition is basically a hollow vessel that does what the Kremlin tells it. But if there were to be a massive popular mobilization, it might have to take on substance. That would be one of the ways in which things can happen. Um, the kind of extra systemic opposition, so-called, includes a huge variety of groups, different sizes, regionally extremely diverse um, and again, there are there are some independent trade unions involved in that, um, ironically, who've formed these brand new trade unions in what used to be Western-owned factories. Uh, used to be again because all of these people have moved out of Russia since the war, but they used to be you know Ford plants, Volkswagen plants, and these were the spur for a new labor resurgence. So there was a lot of exciting stuff happening there. Um, there are also interesting kind of. Uh, environmental groups. Um, there were also kind of civic uh, preservation groups. So there's quite a broad coalition of people who would turn out to a given action. Again, protests are very small in Russia historically. Um, so it's kind of hard to gauge the scale of oppositional opinion in that context. Um, but if you like, there was this cycle of oppositional uh, movements coming out in a variety of forms through the 2010s, if you like, 
Um, and Navalny eventually became the kind of pole around which a lot of those things would gather. They had to kind of either join his protests with their own banners and slogans, or they would have to make sure they'd organize a separate protest to be seen as separate. But either way, you couldn't not deal with Navalny. Um, and then something kind of interesting happens to Navalny, which I'm sure we can go into more detail on. Um, but he was originally a liberal in the 2000s. He became a kind of Russian nationalist in the late 2000s, expressing some pretty repellent views, in my opinion. Um, and then takes up this cause of corruption in the 2010s and becomes very popular for it. And he just hammers away at that theme. But what happened in kind of the second half of the 2010s, I'd say, um, and especially around 2018, is that Navalny, as he gains this national stature and becomes a kind of national figure, his political agenda also shifts. Um, and it gains a lot more kind of a social emphasis. Um, he ditches some of the more neoliberal aspects of his program. The nationalist stuff also kind of dis disappears. Um, and that kind of evolution, if you like, is kind of hard to grab hold of. Um, I think, you know, one way of thinking about it is, oh, he's still uh, an appalling nationalist. He's just worked out how to be a bit more presentable. But those are those are older views are his real views. The other, another way of thinking about it is he has actually evolved. His views have changed on contact with more and more people. And he's realized, oh, opposing Putinism isn't just about getting rid of a few corrupt people. It's a whole systemic issue. And thrown in with that, we have to redress massive inequalities. And he has publicly said things like this. Well, excuse me, he did uh, until his death say a lot of things like this that made clear he was aware that the problem was this model, not just the people at the top. Um, and, you know, again, he's far from being on the left or a socialist of any kind. And it's an open question to me whether, you know, if he got into power magically in 2018, would he have uh, been a supernationalist or not? But I'm, it's interesting to note that the 2007 version of Navalny, for example, would probably have been in favor of the war in Ukraine because he was in favor of the war in Georgia in 2008, say. Right. And by the time we get to 2022, Navalny is very much opposed to the war in Ukraine, and he's one of the most prominent critics of it. And that's much to his credit that he took a very principled and clear line against it. So he has this evolving view. Um, but all throughout that evolution, interestingly, he remains the center of any kind of Russian oppositional movement. So the, the real question for all of these other groups that I mentioned is like, what is your relationship to Navalny? Do you join his movement and try and push it in a particular direction or do you stand aloof from it and risk being irrelevant um but he's the indispensable figure basically and that is part of why he got thrown in jail and, and ultimately why he was murdered and that is that is the case even when he is actually in, in germany right? so he doesn't have to even be in russia for him to be this sort of central charismatic figure of that of that movement um i'm wondering how much this is diffused into uh russian society at large where of course media is very well controlled uh, by the by the regime. I'm wondering, what is the average Russian's experience of Navalny? Are they even aware he exists on the day he was uh, murdered, or at least his murder was announced? I was um, with some Russians in, in London, and they were extremely upset. But this is, of course, a, a very different collection of people. Um, how widespread is, is, is Navalny's uh, image in Russia? He's not even referred to by Putin. He referred to as uh, that character, or I think the Berlin patient, which seems like an extraordinary nickname. Like, so, so is he? Does he have wide purchase in Russian society? Yeah, and just the the counter nickname Navalny had for Putin was uh, Grandpa in his bunker. 
<laughs> I mean, a lot of this will really depend um, on age cohort and to some extent on class as well. Like what is, what is the main media you have access to above a certain age, the main media through which people consume news is, is still TV. Uh, I would say maybe people over 50, maybe a bit younger. I'm not sure, but, but something like that. And, and TV is obviously very tightly controlled below a certain age. It would be a whole range of um, internet based news sources. And that could be anything. Right, it could be very tightly controlled government sources, or it could be um, much more critical oppositional sources. Many of which are now labelled foreign agents and have to operate outside Russia. But you know, people are quite savvy with uh, VPNs, and they can get their news. However, so I think you know, below a certain age, there'll be an ideological split uh, between people who are very much pro what the regime is doing and people who are very much anti. But I imagine both of those groups will actually be relatively well informed within the pool of news they're consuming and it won't be just the official sources. I mean, I'm generalizing very broadly. Um, in terms of how well-known Navalny was uh, nationwide, I think initially he was very much uh, known in Moscow and not much beyond. But with that kind of move to be a national politician, he did travel around the country. He met a lot of people uh, before he got put in jail. Um, and I think... Yeah, nationally, his, his, he definitely did have some kind of profile, but again, mainly with younger people. I mean, I use the word younger advisedly, but yeah. Um, I think the other thing to think about is that Russia is, you know, it's, it's a, obviously an extremely huge country, but it is a predominantly urban one. Um, something like 75, 80% of the population, if not more, maybe 80, 85, lives in cities. So even though we're dealing with a very dispersed population most of them are city dwellers with access to those amenities it's not a rural country where people are really uh i mean there are large numbers of people who are very physically isolated from uh sources of news etc but it's quite well connected in every other sense so so and there will be kind of hubs of activity and oppositional consciousness spread literally everywhere and this is why when navalny died you saw all these people going to memorials and putting flowers there and this was across the country right so so i think um and that does testify to hum excuse me to some um broader awareness of him as a figure that was pretty substantial i'd say there were this is the uh memorial to political prisoners in moscow people were laying flowers and they were removed overnight by mysterious uh, agents of the state one presumes yes um you mentioned that the Russian opposition is very heterogeneous, very fragmented, both geographically, but also in terms of its beliefs. And there's a sort of a central contradiction that is in some ways um, built into it. And I'm wondering if you could speak to a sort of predictive question. Right? What are we likely to see in the Russian opposition now that Navalny is no longer this um, thing, not exactly centralizing, not exactly coordinating the opposition, but the thing that everyone has to have some sort of relationship to in order to be seriously in the opposition. What does that, what does his death mean uh, for the opposition in the future? I think it's a very severe blow, honestly. I think um, because he did have a number of, he, he was this useful unifying figure, if you like, a counter Putin, if you want to put it that way. But he also had a lot of political skills. Um, and I think the people who work with him on his documentaries and on his campaigns are certainly clearly very savvy people. It's not, I don't know them or their backgrounds well enough to know if they have his skill set and his appeal. Um, and so that, that is, is pretty important. 
Um, I think the other thing, though, and, and to some extent, Navalny was also a casualty of this, that, that his activism and his effectiveness was really peaking in 2021 when he returned to Russia. Um, and the war has really thrown that wide open. It's much, much harder to mount an effective opposition in the climate in Russia today. And, you know, a lot of the people who could lead that kind of movement or play a really effective part in it have had to flee overseas. So you've you really split the Russian opposition once again into many pieces by distributing it a large chunk of it across the globe. Um, and it's just very hard for those people to be as effective on the ground from exile, which just leaves people within Russia much more, um, um, you know, isolated in their activity. Um, but I think the other piece is that that it that is, you know, it takes a particular kind of clarity of thought and political courage to really maintain what in this context would be a defeatist position, right? That actually they would have to wish for the defeat of Russia or the end of the war or the end of the regime. But those three things would have to go together. And I think, you know, asking people to come out against the war in Russia in current conditions is, is a big ask, but people are still doing it. They're getting arrested in currently small numbers, but last year they got arrested in what, again, for Russia, pretty significant numbers. But that's a very big ask. And, and the ask is only getting bigger because the longer the war drags on, the more this becomes a question of uh, of national pride, of national success. Um, I remembered in particular, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, what was happening in the UK and US around the Iraq war. There were very significant mobilizations in the run-up to the war. And again, once the war was on, that, that activism continued. But it became much harder to oppose the war once it was up and running because the broader public you need to bring into that struggle is not going to want the defeat of their own army. That's a very hard thing. And again, we've got countless examples of this. What would help the Russian opposition really achieve something is, is I don't want to say historically unprecedented, but extremely unlikely to happen. And, and this is where Navalny comes in, because he, with the anti-corruption agenda, with the systemic critique, he would have, he had a good way of pitching, here is why you should oppose the war. It's because this is not the problem. The Ukrainians are not the problem. This regime and the structure it perpetuates is the problem. And so the question really, I guess, is how much can the opposition still put forward that critique and make it land as a way of ending the war and then effecting change after that? But again, you know, as I'm listing this, this is a crazily big ask. This would be a crazily big ask in a country with freedom of assembly and freedom of the press and without people being thrown in jail for very minor infractions. So it's Unfortunately, yeah, I'm quite pessimistic about where this can go. After the question of like convincing people, there is also the question of then actually using that convincingness to change the policy of the country, which is no small thing in an authoritarian um, state. I do want to talk about that question you mentioned, that sort of um, question of the period before the First World War. Um, Grant Shapps, no great intellectual, but the uh, current uh, Minister of Defence in the UK has warned that the UK and indeed the world is heading into a, a period of, of possible war, like a large-scale war that makes uh, even the war in Ukraine or um, the genocide in Gaza look relatively small by comparison, um, a return really to a sort of 20th century scale or an early part of the 20th century scale of war. The alternative framing, and perhaps something quite linked, is that we're in a new Cold War. We're in a return to, to something like those sort of dynamics. That's sort of compelling on its face, I think partially because it seems like the major players are the same, right? And so you can just imagine that thing being rerun in the same way that you can imagine World War II as sort of a 
quasi rerun of World War One. However, I'm interested in what you make of these two notions. Firstly, the idea of a new Cold War. And secondly, that we are in this period that Christopher Clarke has characterized as the sort of sleepwalking period, the period in which the contrasting but not ideologically massively distinct states of imperialist states of Europe and the way in which they come to the First World War uh, in the early 20th century? Uh, yeah, two big questions. Um, I think the cold, uh, I'll deal with the, the new Cold War framework first. I guess, um, and, and I, I say this in the book because it's you know, in the subtitle of my book, but uh, to some extent, a Cold War is a kind of speech act. If you think you're in one, you're in one. Right. And so there are people out there in the US policy establishment who are definitely fighting a Cold War as far as they're concerned. Um, but I think the structure of geopolitics is not the same at all. Um, I think the Cold War really was a global ideological contest um, with global ramifications. And it involved literally everywhere in the globe in some proxy, indirect, direct way. Right. Like there were Cold War battles, you know, being fought in the Amazon between. Uh, the Brazilian military and guerrilla factions, there would be, you know, you could, you could pick a part of the globe and the Cold War was a relevant framework for understanding that. And I think this confrontation, as far as the US is concerned, looks like that. But from anywhere else on the globe, it doesn't look like that, right? And a lot of the rest of the world um, is not a party to the conflict in Ukraine in any sense. It's a really a US-European project facing off against Russia. And Russia doesn't also have many allies either, right? So if you like, it's a kind of Northern Hemisphere conflict, borrowing a lot of the kind of clothing of the old Cold War because that works ideologically for people. But it doesn't really hold water because also what is the what is ideologically at stake between Russia and the West? And, you know, you hear liberal commentators framing this as a battle between authoritarianism and democracy and blah, blah, blah. But it's um, that just doesn't work um, because of all of the authoritarians on our side. Um, and, and obviously, it was hollow during the Cold War too. It was nonsense um, because it was about capitalism versus communism. Um, in the neo Cold War, it's about capitalism versus capitalism, right? And these are rival geopolitical blocks with incompatible interests, but ideologically, the divergences between them are kind of whatever the word is secondary. I would say phenomena to that fundamental clash of interests. Um, and that does that sort of brings us a bit to the comparison you made between the now and the period leading up to the First World War. And again, I think there's something to that in the sense of this these rival geopolitical blocks kind of gradually accelerating into a conflict with each other. Um, but one big difference I would highlight in there, well, a couple of big differences, if you like. Uh, one is that you know in the lead up to the First World War, we were really dealing with several powers, right, of different weights, but closer to each other's uh, significance, uh, military power than what we're currently looking at, right? You had Germany in the heart of Europe, you had Britain, France, you had Russia, you had Austria-Hungary, um, all with their own empires, large developed economies, Britain obviously bigger than the rest. But these were, you know, we're talking half a dozen very major players crashing into each other with incompatible blocks. What you have in Ukraine is really one country, Russia, meeting up against a bloc that is many times its size in terms of population, economic power, military power. Uh, and the reason this conflict is prolonged is because all of the powers outside Ukraine are not willing to actually launch a full-scale war against Russia. They are 
very keen to keep it confined to Ukraine and keep arming Ukraine to keep Russia at bay, right? That's the strategy. Um, and, you know, it's funny the UK defense minister sees this big war coming because actually the whole of Western strategy has been precisely to not have a World War One to keep it focused in Ukraine, uh, which to my mind, you know, is very morally culpable. It's like we're outsourcing all of the fighting to the Ukrainians, just giving them the weapons to keep having their country be this battlefield. Does that matter? So I'm, I'm thinking about this sort of the opposition of two more or less equally powered blocks. And I'm wondering if that really matters in a post-1945 world in which the um, ultimate point of escalation is nuclear war. And of course, Russia is you know, not uh, a small nuclear power. In fact, it has more nuclear weapons, I believe, than the US currently does. So this is a this is in at that scale of escalation, an e- equally matched, perhaps, uh, adversary. But it's just at the scale of escalation that it's currently at. It's not equally matched. Yes, yes. I should say, like, you know, if we were to go into all-out war with Russia then... And and if the goal was to have was to topple Putin's regime, that would be there would be a very serious risk of nuclear escalation. Then you know we'd all be dead. Um, and so again, part of both the Russian strategy and the Western strategy is to keep this confined to Ukraine and make it a conventional war. So I guess that's the paradox in a way that we've got this crossover of neo Cold War framing, but the actual battles being fought are much more reminiscent of World War One with massively improved technology of destruction, drones, et cetera, et cetera. But it is very much more like a kind of, you know, front line that barely moves over six months. Um, I guess the other major difference uh, from both of those conflicts, if you like, is that uh, China is not a belligerent. Um, It is Russia's largest trade partner and is seen as widely supporting Russia in the war. And, you know, there have been various attempts to try and get China to lean on Russia to kind of stop this. Um, And who knows, they might eventually be able to do that. But basically, the world's second largest economy is kind of sitting on the sidelines of this particular confrontation because, and this is the other thing about the neo-Cold War framework, the US is already fighting a neo-Cold War against China, right? So it's, I mean, I guess the question is, how many Cold Wars can you run at the same time? Because these are not the same Cold War, right? Um... And so that's where, again, I see the difference in the present, that actually the real question is where to put Russia in the US-dominated world order. It's not behaving as it should, um, but it's too big to contain easily. But then beyond that looms the much larger problem of China is a serious rival to the US in the longer term, and the US wants to kind of forestall that as much as possible. Um, And these are quite new situations, I think. Thank you, Tony Wood, for allowing us to stay on brand and end in the bleakest possible manner, um, as uh, Navarro FM always likes to. Always my pleasure, yeah. <laughs>